Welcome to On Brand with Donnie Deutsch. Uh, this is the show dedicated to the premise that everything is today as a brand. Every athlete, every celebrity, uh, every cause, every political party, every product, uh, every corporation, everything is a brand. Look, you're a brand. If you've got a Facebook page, you're a brand because you're putting out there what you stand for, what you look like, what your belief system is. So everything is a brand. And we do two things on the show. On Tuesdays, we drop our brands of the week and those are the brands that are kind of, sh- we, we say which brands are up, which brands are down, who's shaping the zeitgeist. And today on Thursdays, we drop our big in-person uh, interview with per- somebody about their own brand. And today it's the brilliant actor, Tony Award winning actor, Alan Cumming. I mean, he's just brilliant, hysterical. You're going to really enjoy today's interview. Take a listen. I am thrilled with today's guest, uh, Alan Cumming, a star of stage and screen. His filmography just goes on for pages and pages. The amount of work that you've done in the last 30 years is staggering. Uh, He, of course, is a Tony Award winner for his starring role in Cabaret. He is uh, multi-nominated for Emmys and Golden Globes and and Screen Actors Guild Award uh, for his role, uh, mainly for The Good Wife. Uh, He's starred in everything from X-Men 2 to Eyes Wide Shut to GoldenEye to Spy Kids. Uh, To say he's versatile is an understatement. His new book, uh, Baggage Tales from a Fully Packed Life, follows up his First memoir, uh, Not My Father's Son, uh, leading LGBT uh, activist. Thrilled to have you here. Thanks, man. Thank you, Donnie. Nice to see you. I'm tired just reading about you. <laughs> Imagine being me. It's exhausting. <laughs> and you're, I, I think the best way to put to set you up is you're probably the only guy in the world that worked back-to-back movies with Stanley Kubrick and the Spice Girls. I mean, that, that kind of says no, it all. I, 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 am, I am the only person. I'm yes. the only person of any gender to have done that. I I, um, I can guarantee. Yeah, I did. That was in like 97. I went from Eyes Wide Shut to Spice World. <clears throat> I love your... And it was great. I'm sure. I love your your uh, your anecdote about Kubrick and getting cast for the first time, meeting him for the first time. Talk to me about uh, being intimidated and not being intimidated by Kubrick. Well, he was very intimidating uh, as a figure, and uh, I'd auditioned <clears throat> for this part in various parts of the world, actually. And they, they, the first time they, they they gave me the 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 scene, and they said, "This is not the scene, but it's like our casting person has written the scene based on what we think the scene's going to be like." I was like, "All right." So then I um, I sort of auditioned, and then here, then that was back in London. I auditioned to get somewhere else. I auditioned, and this was going on and on and on. And then it got to the point where it was like, where are you to be accepted this role? Would you take it? Then I was like, all right, yes, I will. Then it was like, oh, we're going to shoot it in a month. Then we're like, no, we're going to shoot it in three months. No, we're going to shoot it next week. We're going to shoot it. It was, this, it was insane. It was just this saga. And I got onto the set and I never met Stanley. I've met producers and I, you know, I, I didn't ever meet him. And I auditioned on all these, you know, on tape, all these different times. So anyway, I got to the set and the, at that point, the, everyone on the film had been working for a year, like a year on this film. And it, it went on for another six months. It's the longest film shoot in history, apparently. And so they're all just kind of like, oh. And I was the new boy and kind of excited. But also, it was six o'clock in the morning. I got asked to go on the set. There's Tom Cruise and Stanley Kubrick. And, I, and I, um, I, I'd met Tom before. And I sort of went, hello, Stanley, I'm Alan. And he went you're not American, like that, really aggressively. And I was like, I know, I'm Scottish. 
And he went, well, you're an, you're American on the tape. And I went, yeah, that's because I'm an actor, Stanley. <laughs> and I just was really, I just thought, oh, fuck you, old man. I was yeah. really just like, don't give me your shit, Stanley Kubrick. I was, it was, it's too early. And I, when I, when I stand back from it, I, I mean, I sort of think I can understand why some people would be intimidated by him in that situation. But I was, I don't know, I was just sort of a bit feisty. And actually, that is immediately he changed his attitude towards me. I think because I, I stood up to him. And then we got on like a house on fire after that. Yeah, I, I've found that for the most part in my life when I have met either Fortune 50 CEOs or huge celebrities or huge athletes. or they People respect honesty. And because they have so many kind of, you know, uh, sycophants around them that I have found the more powerful the person, the more direct you can be with them. And they appreciate it. I agree. And I do. I just think it's because you're not buying into the the sort of myth around them. And I, but I think it is a self-perpetuating thing. I think people who do have that sort of uh, reputation, you know, I think if I had gone, oh, I'm so sorry, Stanley, then he would have kind of played that up as well. So I think it is interesting. You just have to be yourself. It's about authenticity when it comes down to it. Everything's better when you're authentic. Uh, baggage is really kind of a talks mostly about your Hollywood life. Your first memoir goes into great depth about growing up with a violently abusive dad. And it's been a big informing part of your life. Can we go back a little bit in, in, into the first book and, and just, I, I, I had the opposite. My dad was the most loving, caring, nurturing. So I can't even, and as a dad myself, I'd like to think I'm the same way with my daughter. So it's un, with somebody who hasn't gone through it, it's, it's kind of unfathomable. And just take me back to growing up in Scotland with, with your dad and, and how that I can't, I, as I said, it's unfathomable to me. Uh, well, I mean, it's kind of unfathomable to me as well, actually. Um, it was, I mean, I think my dad was obviously mentally ill. Um, he was just a tyrant and was, Cruel, really cruel and really, I mean, aside from being actually violent and hitting us, he was cruel uh, and played these sort of weird games and we just sort of, he, I mean, he got, he obviously got pleasure from hurting me and, and my brother. And I think it's that, when you think about it like that, it's, it is really unfathomable. And uh, so, you know, it was, uh, and it's something that you, Obviously, it's very traumatic, and uh, it's something that you. And also, I, you know, in the first book, I talk a lot about abuse, and I think people who are abusers, part of being a skillful abuser is to ensure that you make the person you're abusing feel ashamed, and make sure that they protect you and uh, make excuses for you and hide the abuse. That's part of a good abuser's sort of spell, and I definitely did that for my dad. I sort of hid it, and I was ashamed that it was happening to me and you know my 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 brother and I and my mum were all part of that sort of circle of shame and uh so it wasn't until I was I so I left school I left home you know I got away and I didn't really have a relationship with my dad I sort of occasionally would see him uh my mom, my parents split up after that but it wasn't until about I was 28 that I actually, I was trying to become a father myself that I even remembered half of the stuff. I blocked it all out, repressed it. And it was when I was trying to trying to become a father, it all just came rushing out and I basically had a nervous breakdown. And my brother and I both went through this insane sort of 
summer of remembering all this stuff and ultimately went to confront my dad, uh, which I talk about in this baggage as well, actually, which was an ultimately an incredible thing to do. I would thoroughly recommend it to anyone. I mean, it's so scary. Facing your monster is so scary, but it's ultimately... It's, it's all for me it was like I, there was no other thing I could do I had I came to this point in my life where the only thing I could only way I was going to get better and it wasn't that it was resolved but the only the only path for me was to go and confront my dad and tell him that this what had happened to me what I remembered I wanted some sort of for me to know that I'd gone to him and told him I know what you did and I um no, it's wrong, and I don't understand why it happened. I'm giving it back to you. It's very much a, you know, it's a sort of quite a textbook psychological uh, study thing to do is to give back the abuse to the abuser and to not expect anything in return. And I got nothing, actually. I mean, I got the satisfaction of having told him. What happened in the confrontation? You, so you let it out. You, you give it to him, as you said. You put it on him. Yeah, we went to, we went to see him, and... I'd written down everything I wanted to say because I was so nervous. I was worried in case I'd forget things. And we and he and we got there, and he he knew something was up, and he and he, and you know I there'd been stuff. He knew there'd been weird stuff happening in my life. Um, I got I was sort of separated from the relationship I was in. And I was obviously in a bit of a state, and there was there was a lot of I think he'd heard these things. So he and then we both wanted to come and see him, which was incredibly unusual. Uh, that hadn't happened for many, many years. And so he invited us into the house where, you know, so much of the abuse had happened. So we said no to that. We said we'd rather go on a walk around the estate. I grew up on a country estate. My dad was a forester. Um, so we went for a walk around the, the estate. And he had a stick. He had a he had a sort of a, you know, like a, like a, a, a hiking staff thing. And he kept banging it against the side of his boots. He would just he'd bang it like that, really sort of like he was suppressing all this rage and was hitting his own boot with it. So that was really scary. And I and we and we and we talked we talked it all out and um, both said what we felt and questions we wanted to ask. I wanted to ask him about why this had happened. What did could he, was it possible for him to try and understand why he had hit us? Was it something that happened to him that he, you know, and in his child, what was his childhood like? And just things like that. I was trying to, we tried to, and not do too much sort of, you know, psychobabble, but try and get some sort of sense out of him. But it didn't go well. He sort of, at one point, he said there was no reason, you know, he had a perfectly happy childhood. No, I said, well, then that means you're just a psychopath, <laughs> which obviously didn't go well. Um, and at one point, I thought he was going to hit me. Did did he deny any of it? Did he have an explanation? Did he have any a mea culpa? Was it where I mean, what, he, you're, you're laying this out on him, and and he's going okay, just fine. I, what, what was his reaction? He he didn't deny it. He didn't have. I mean, he just kind of fumed, and he said that. Um, he said things like his marriage was over uh, bef the, uh, after, I mean, it's interesting. He said things then that I didn't quite understand until many years later. He said that his marriage was over um, two years after my brother was born. 
And I was like, what's that got to do with it? You know, and also I was like, that's thanks so much because that's four years before I was born. Right. <laughs> and uh, uh, so there was just stuff like that. But no, he couldn't really. He didn't he didn't say you're talking rubbish or anything like that. No, he knew this had happened. And we just tried to say to him that, you know, if he wanted to be in our life, my brother has kids and if he wanted to be a part of our lives, then he had to engage with us in a discussion about this. And he had to, we need, we needed more from him and we needed to him to accept it and we needed him some somehow apologize or, or just give us something that he was, or else, you know, maybe it wasn't possible, didn't want to have a relationship with us. We didn't really have a relationship with him, but anyway, it was more about the getting it out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I didn't, I mean, he just, I kind of thought he was going to hit me at one point. And at the end, he was sort of left it like, you know, he didn't, he wasn't able to say very much. He went away and I could see tears in his eyes as he, as he turned away. And, I, and then we just drove off and we were both shaking. And I'd written everything down on a piece of paper. And my brother said to me, oh, you were so good, Alan. You hardly looked at the script at all. <laughs> <laughs> like I'd learned all my lines. Um, and then I never heard from him ever again until... Um, I was doing, I mean, probably not for another 20 years or something, 16, 17 years, maybe. And I was doing that BBC show, Who Do You Think You Are? Mm -hmm. Where they trace your genealogy. Yeah. And um, they'd said to me, you know, they, they ask you if you are interested, then they want, then they go and in, um, interview all your family uh, and sort of see if there's a story there. So they said, we know you don't really talk have a relationship with your father, but do you, would you mind if we, we, interviewed him for the thing i was like sure but i said i don't want him to be in the film whatever happens but you know he might give some information about because at that point i didn't know what part of my um ancestors they were going to focus on so anyway they he knew i was doing the who do you think you are and then they didn't like the, the they actually focused on my maternal grandfather nothing from my dad's side but he knew i was doing it and so right when i was filming it about to start filming it um my he called up my brother and said to him and my brother came to my house and told me that my dad had asked him to tell me that I was not his biological son and so I things made a lot of sense and then they didn't as well I mean this it was just this crazy crazy summer where or a few weeks actually not even a summer where my dad had told me I was not his biological son I was happy I was actually happy that made me happy to think I wasn't genetically attached to him it also I felt bad my brother I felt like in some way I was losing you know we were there's this divide between separated us. yeah 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 because he was said he said you're lucky that night we he stayed over in my house and we slept in this little bunk room in my flat in London just been weeping and everything it was just so intense I it was just incredible and uh he said you're lucky that you're not his son and then and then I tried to speak to my dad and to sort of, you know, because I wanted to, before I spoke to my mum, I wanted to find out what was going on. And and then the thing about him that he'd said, and, you know, when we confronted him about how his marriage was over and that was, and then I, and I was, there was all these things going through my mind. I said, That's why I don't have a hairy chest. Right. That was the thing I remember <laughs> thinking, this revelation. And, um, and I, he said he would do a DNA test and he told me that I'd spoke to him. He told me the story of what had happened and, and how it had never really been, discussed and but it, this elaborate story about this you saw my mum coming out of this room and 
uh, this dance and this guy. Anyway, I just was so sort of wary of him and so worried I wanted to do the DNA. He, he said he would do the DNA test and he said he wouldn't. And I thought, oh, what am I going to do now? But then I realized that my brother and I both did the DNA test and we would be able to tell if we were the same. Sure. We would, you know, we would know. So we did that. And I was filming away in, on this who do you think you are thing and shooting a thing in South Africa. And it took longer than it should have. Anyway, we eventually got the results of the DNA test. And my brother and I had the same DNA. So I was my father's son. And I had to then call my dad up and tell him I was his, I was his son. And he, you know, he was, he sort of went, well, I'm very surprised to hear that. I was like, I bet you are. Um, and it was just insane. I mean, that's when I realized I was dealing with a, a mentally ill person. Yeah, obviously. Because even in the, even knowing that, even having the proof of that, he was like, well, you know, I had to believe it. I was like, no, you didn't. You chose to believe this. And I realized he made up this whole story. And eventually I spoke to my mum about it because she was horrified. And she and she remembered, like, she could tell what he was thinking, that she was actually, had been helping this someone who had, had, a, had a drink problem. She was talking to them about their alcoholism. And he, she'd seen, he, had, he had seen her talking to someone and, 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 and that to him. And, I, and, and then I realized he had done that. He had made up that reason as a sort of, I think, as a sort of a, a way to justify how he was behaving in both his marriage to my mom and in the violence he was giving to, to us. Except it didn't make sense because he was violent to my brother as well. So yeah. the whole thing was just so nuts and dense and difficult. And, and in a funny way, you know, I had to give up trying to work it out because you can't get rationale from a an irrational person. But yeah. so it was just, that was the last time I ever spoke to him. Right. Was that phone call, me telling him that I was, I, and, I, I, and I knew it was going to be the last time. And then when I finished the phone call, I realized <laughs> I was dressed, I was playing a transvestite in this miniseries and I was completely in drag and had false boobs on. <laughs> And high heels and I was in my trailer at lunchtime. I thought, this is, this is so this perfect. Is my perfect. father Poetic justice. Yeah, you should have sent him a picture. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I should have. Yeah. <laughs> so growing up, did you, you've been married uh, to a woman for seven or eight years. You're currently married to a man. Um, growing up with, with your sexuality, were you, did, did you always know you were bisexual? Was it, I mean, how, where did that, where did that all kind of play out as a kid? I mean, um, first of all, I think you would never ask that to a straight person. Donnie, do you know what I mean? You never say to someone, when did you know you were straight? And I think that's an interesting thing in our culture that I just you're did right. always that's feel a, you're, like couple. this. Right. I've always yeah. felt the same. I agree with that. And uh, and it's something, it's so good. So it's something that, but it's sort of something, the, the when did you know uh, thing is a question that queer people get asked all the time. And uh, but you would never think of it as a straight person. You never ask a straight You know person. what? I, I would never, I've but never, I, I've never. I just, uh, I've never asked again. It's the the bisexuality part to me that prompts that curious, maybe ignorant question on on my part because mm. it's it's. I don't think I've ever asked somebody when you know when did you know you were gay. I haven't, but it was just in in start reading about you and whatnot. I just just found that yeah. What's the word I want to use? Just I was curious about that. I hope I didn't insult you. I'm sorry. No, you didn't insult me. I'm used, I mean, I, I, people ask me a lot, but I always sort of say, I always try and say that to just sort of, to make people, to remind people that it's not, that there's a still a thing of queerness is 
remarkable and actually why should it be if you if it's as it's as your sexuality is the you know is as remarkable whether you are straight or gay or whatever mm-hmm. and i just think the idea that i i think it would be fair enough if you said straight people if, if we as a culture said straight people when did you realize you were straight yeah and not anything else that would be kind of interesting actually but anyway so i but i always sort of felt like i always felt like that in, in as uh, growing up and i uh, yeah, I always sort of identified as bisexual. Uh, it became pretty clear early on. And so before I was married, I'd had, I mean, I, I got married when I was 21, very, very young. That's crazy. And I, but I'd had, you know, a boyfriend before then. I always thought, I mean, I think the other thing is that people think that, oh, you know, when you're in a, a, an opposite sex relationship and you're bisexual, that it's sort of, ultimately doomed because you haven't quite resolved things but actually it's sort of like if you're in a, in a marriage you just think you know i did think that was going to last forever all, all the relationships i've had in my life i i committed to i thought were going to last forever mm-hmm. and they haven't obviously uh and that's sort of what happens in life and i think but you know the fact that you you don't sort of i mean so you just sort of think that's going to be it and then regardless of the gender of the person and then you're in love and then you know something happens and it's it ends and so i just i and after that i was i was engaged to uh i've been engaged to another woman who's who's now just recently got divorced from her wife it's all very you know i think it's sort of a Things are always more fluid. Fluid, yes. That's the ahead of the curve. Ahead, it's ahead of yes, the fluidity the, curve. Yes, the fluid's a word now. We didn't have that word five and ten years ago. So, yes, you're, you're no. a pioneer in fluidity. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Let's move on to some, a little bit more lighter and a little bit more about your career. And you, you've touched on some characters in the book. Let's talk about Liza Minnelli. Because uh, she's one of the more fascinating... I've never met Liza... But just uh, it just seems like a fascinating, fascinating character. She is, and I just love her. I just heard from her yesterday, actually, because I'm going to Los Angeles in a couple of weeks. I'm going to go and see her. Um, she, so I, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of hilarious because I can't quite believe that, like you know, Liza's my friend. Um, things you know, just there's various, there's many things in my life that are completely ridiculous in terms of what I thought my life was going to be like, or indeed how the logic of how my life might have gone. It's just not. It doesn't. And I think that's a, quite an interesting. I, I, I write a little bit about that in baggage that there's just no, there's no reason for it, and I think that's you have to give up reason. I think that's one of the things I've done in my life. I've, I've stopped trying to work out why things happen, and and the logic of things and the you know, any, I guess that also means anything is possible, but also anything is impossible, I suppose. But I met her when she came, when I did cabaret. So I first came to New York uh, in 1998 to do cabaret on Broadway. I'd done it in London. I'd made a few films in Hollywood. I mean, I'm one of these annoying actors that my first job in America was a Hollywood film. My first job in New York was a Broadway musical. Right. <laughs> I, you know, it's, I've had a sort of a, I've had a charmed life in many ways and and then not in other ways. But um, she, so I was doing that on Broadway. She came to see the show, and I had to, I had to. Um, so when she, she she was in the front row, you know, sitting at a table, it was in this cabaret setting, and Natasha Richardson was playing 
Sally Bowles and she's and you know she was really lovely actually because she sort of I was such a newbie I didn't know and understand any of the sort of the the etiquette of Broadway and all that stuff and she helped me and she said that you know Liza was in and and she was going to have to do a speech at the end of the show and invite Liza up on the stage and I was like what you're inviting her and I said, what nobody would do that and and you know I'd, I'd been living in London and prior to that and it's much more sort of I guess a little fuddy-duddy and more formal there but anyway there's, there's I was like what Liza's going to come on the stage and she goes and yes and you've got to go down into the audience and, and pick her up and bring her and I was like what and so <laughs> my whole performance that night was just dominated with nerves I was going to have to go to Liza and so what would you say and I'm all sweaty and in my makeup I'm like you know come on uh, but of course she completely knew and she completely knew what was going to happen and she was lovely and she came up and and she did this amazing thing actually where like the audience went nuts you know, the, like the show was a big hit, but like Liza coming on. Can you imagine yeah. Liza walking on the end of a play you were at? And everyone just went nuts. It was this huge standing ovation for ages, forever. And it was just, and she kind of did a Liza gesture. Right. And uh, and then and then, and then then I could tell, I could see that she understood it wasn't going to stop. She had to do something to stop it. And so she did this. I mean, I, that's why I think I've, I think you know I, I've performed with her now. I've, we've done concerts and things together, and I can just see what an absolute genius she is. Because she's got this great, you know, she's she is so vulnerable and so authentic, actually, and also, but also such a showman, a showwoman, show person. She knows exactly the power she has, and but also she's fragile. So it's incredible to watch this sort of mastery and this sort of vulnerability, fragility yeah, 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 at yeah. the same time. Yeah. yeah. So she, but she did this thing. She realized it wasn't going to stop. And so she turned around and in a sort of a Liza gesture, uh, sp spun around. And it was like she took all the love that she was getting and spun around and kind of made this gesture with her arms and threw it out to us, the, the cast, who were all standing in a row behind her. And it was incredible. It was everybody knew what she meant. And it stopped the thing happening about her and made it about us again. Yeah. And then, and that was the end wow. of the thing. And it was just, I was, I was just blown away by it. And then she, then she came into my dressing room, and the first thing she said to me was, "Alan, I want to be your friend forever." <laughs> and uh, I know, and she, I mean, it's, it's kind of, she's something she says to other people too. But it was actually, you know, we were still friends. It's been lovely. And she, and then I, and Fred Ebb was with her, who was the lyricist. And it, my dressing room was so tiny. It was literally like a sort of, it had a little chaise long and I could actually wash my hands whilst lying down. And uh, she, um, I turned to talk to Fred. When I turned back to Liza, her head was kind of squashed against the wall and my shirt, my wet towel that I just showered, dried from my shower was, was in her face. And I said, oh my gosh, Liza, your face is all squashed up against my towel. And she said something, I'd squash my face against anything for you, Alan. Oh. And it was just the start of this really lovely really lovely relationship i don't know i just feel we we kind of connect in some way uh and i've done you know I, I made a record with her and then we did some concerts together a few years ago and, and now i go and you know she lives in los angeles now and she's not you know it's not so good physically so uh, I, I go around to her house and we just sort of sit on our bed and watch telly and she smokes and we just laugh and uh it's just really really great and i i don't know it's just sort of i think in a way that she, she, i've got a picture actually in my 
hallway. I don't really, I try not to have too many showbiz pictures in my house. I think it's, you know, I try to contain it. But there's one that I've got of me and Liza and I'm look, I look a bit teary and she, and it was after her concert she did in like 2000 or something in, in, in the, on Broadway, this sort of thing she was doing. And the reason I'm teary is that, and that the reason the photographer gave it to me, uh, sort of framed it and sent it to me, it was so nice, is because she just told me, right? She, I, 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 she came over to me in the after party and I sort of wondered, I wonder if I'll see Liza tonight, you know, I was invited to the opening. And, and there's this sort of thing when a famous person enters a room, it's like a tornado. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like this, you look over and you see everyone looking and it's sort of the spinning thing is coming and it was coming towards me. And I thought, oh gosh, that's Liza, that's Liza. And then all of a sudden everything went quiet and I, w- I was inside the tornado and Liza was with me and I was, everyone was sort of spinning around us. And I said, oh gosh, Liza, I, I, it was so great. And she went, I thought about you so much tonight, Alan. And I was like, you did? You know, because like you're, <laughs> we're opening a right. show on Broadway. And, and she went, she went, yes. I mean, I think we know each other from a former life, don't you? And I went, oh, maybe. And then just then they took this picture of us. And so Liza just told me she thought she knew me from a former life. And so that's <laughs> that's our sort of uh, connections based on these sort of otherworldly things a little bit. And she's just a darling. Your career, I can't think of an artist that has done the range of stuff from the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas to Bubble Guppies to Cabaret to the Simp- the Simpsons to the L Word um, to Reefer Madness the movie musical to Nicholas Nickleby I, 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 is this by design or it just kind of to your point earlier it just kind of falls your way and you just kind of have fun with everything it, it, it sort of I mean in a way it's designed I mean it's sort of I've always been eclectic. That's the best. That's the, that's the word I was looking for. That's the that's the word. It, I've yeah. never seen a more collect, eclectic body of work, and in the in the in the most positive sense of the word. And it just it, it was stunning for me as I was doing my homework. I mean, it blew me away. Ah, uh, well, thanks. I I I like it, and I mean, it's I, I suppose it is partly designed, but then you know, eclecticism breeds eclecticism. So yeah. it, it now I don't now it just sort of happens. Um. And I guess my own sort of sensibility is if I've been doing a certain type of something, I want to do something different. So I can, I think I can contribute to it as well. But no, I really like that. I really, and I also it's something about artistic snobbery that I just really hate. That I think you are a better person for having for understanding different types of things, you know? And I mean that not just in an artistic way. I think as a, as just as a human being that you, it's important to learn and understand other people's lives and other people's experiences. And it makes you have, makes you a more grounded and well-balanced person. And I, I think that's kind of what's wrong with America right now, that we don't listen to each other and we, and the standard of education is so poor and people don't have the opportunity to see outside of their own environments. And therefore we just are all, standing shouting at each other and you know look where we've got to but so i for me it's really um a thing that i always try and expand my horizons and just do new fun things and also i just love having fun so a lot of these things are the artistic snobbery part comes because they seem really flippant and you know and fluffy and a lot of them are and then and then i go and do something completely 
weird and dense and nuts and uh, sort of, you know, avant-garde. And I like that too. I like both ends of the spectrum. So I, <laughs> I just think that's really important to me to keep, keep doing that. I, I've just finished, like I've just this this uh, I, I've just done this dance theatre piece uh, in Scotland, and we did it at the Joyce here in New York. You know about the life of Robert Burns, the Scottish poet. So I decided to start dancing, age fifty-seven, or you know do a more more dance yes. than I've ever done before. And then immediately I went and did a travel show with Miriam Margulies, the actor. I did this for British TV. We've done two seasons now. And I drive around in a van and we just talk about, you know, I had to find what BDE is for her and things like that. And, just, you know, we just have an absolute naughty laugh. And then I've just played Sigmund Freud in this weird little film. And, you know, now I'm going to do some concerts. And I just go back and forward and spin around. And it's really important for me to do that. We talked about your dark past. Are you a happy guy now? I am. Yes. Am I happy now? Yes. I am happy. I uh, feel I have a great life. I have a great relationship. I feel, I mean, I feel happy in the knowledge that I have baggage. <laughs> we all do. We all do. I, yes, we all do. And I feel it's important not to, I mean, that was one of the reasons I did write this book was to sort of uh, to counter the thing that came after the first memoir, which was that Alan's gone through this terrible trauma and his dad was violent to him and as a little boy, and now he's all sort of you know fixed and triumphed and it's over. And and actually, I think that's what I wanted to just reiterate that that is not the case. You, no one who has trauma, and we all have trauma in, in some degree. You don't. It doesn't go away. You just sort of hopefully get to learn to manage it better and the idea that you pretend it's not there and it's all sorted out i think is that way madness lies so for me having understand you know having ptsd basically and having uh you know being aware that things can trigger me and i have some issues it's it's, it's actually really difficult to to understand that you know you weren't like you were saying it, it, you can't imagine what it must have been like to not have a father who really loved you, but also physically abused you and mentally abused you and enjoyed it, showed you that they enjoyed it. That's a lot to go through your life with. It yeah. kind of skews things. And so I to not um, acknowledge it as a huge thing. And, you know, I sort of cut myself some slack sometimes in certain situations because I think, oh, I see. That's why I'm, that's why I'm feeling this way. But I actually... Also, I mean, I say that I've said this thing that I have, and it helps me in my work. I have great access to darkness and to anguish and to pain. Yeah, I do. I understand it, and I, but I choose to stand in the light. I choose to. I don't. I go when I when I go there. It's either involuntary because something's happened to me, or I go there because something in my work makes me have to delve into that. But I'm very careful to close the door on it and go home and have a nice time. Cause I've, I've, there's been times in my way in my past where I didn't do that. And I kind of, you know, took it home and uh, that's not nice. You don't want to do that. Speaking of nice time, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Alan. I really appreciate you taking the time. The most recent book is baggage tales from a fully packed life. It's out in paperback. Thanks for taking the time, my friend. 
Thanks for listening to On Brain with Donnie Deutsch. I hope you enjoyed your, our interview with Alan Cumming. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, any place else. And tune in on Tuesday for our Brands of the Week, and we'll see you then. Okay, have a great week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.